they only work for certain things. It's, it's, it's kind of like a model, in a sense, it's kind of like an analogy. Mm-hmm. At some point, it always breaks okay, down. Okay, girls, right. you're both pretty, and I love science and humanities equally. <laughs> Well, if I could just if I could just if I could just critique my own tribe for a bit. James, we have another guest today, so this should be a fun podcast. We have Josh Nisley with us, and Josh and I met in August of 2004 in Montana at a wedding, and it was love at first sight, I think. But uh <laughs> Maybe only on my part. For for Josh, I think it was more like the beginning of decades of being bullied into being my friend. <laughs> Josh is one of the more long-suffering people I know, and I like to think that probably I had a hand in developing some of that. Josh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, not sure how I'm supposed to respond to that, but I do... Uh, take pride in the fact that I am your worst best friend, as you put it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it would be in character for you to remember the month and the year that we met. Um, I would not have been able to pull that up. <laughs> I'm Josh, Sean's worst best friend. I recently mastered the English language, which is relevant to the topic at hand today. I currently live in Meadville. Pennsylvania, and I teach, among other things, freshman comp, uh, college writing at Faith Builders, as well as high school literature, and just do a variety of other things on the side as well. Very good. James, you had a, you had a chance to work in the same space as Josh in recent weeks. What had you been up to while you were there at Faith Builders? I think I maybe mentioned this on a previous episode, but I was teaching part of a science class. I taught for about five and a half weeks, and I was walking through the halls there at Faith Builders and looked over and saw the name Josh Nisley beside a door, <laughs> and I knew that Josh was up there. You'd told me, and so I, I stuck my head in his office, which was the first of many times that I interrupted him when he was in the middle of work. <laughs> I felt kind of bad about and stopped doing quite so much. So the first time I was there, I sat down, we started talking and uh, shared with him that I've, that even though I was teaching science there, I've taught literature more years than I've taught any science classes in high school. And so we started talking about literature and it's something he's very passionate about. It might come out uh, in this episode, I don't know. And so we really enjoyed discussing literature and the humanities as I was there talking to him, I thought, you know what, it would really be fun <laughs> to have him on the podcast. And I uh, dropped by one day and asked him if he'd be willing. And at first he was very hesitant. And then I told him what the discussion was about. And then he was pretty much all in. So <laughs> we'll have to see what he has to, to share with us. It's always good to be, meet a science man who appreciates literature. Um, so as much as we played the stereotypical, you know, science versus humanities. <laughs> I could tell that that James was a was a true human and not just a, <laughs> not just a brain and a body. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm that's good. I'm glad I was able to fool you. <laughs> we aren't going to talk about either chemistry or literature maybe in particular, but we might more go into 
something more more meta or bigger and talk just about education in general, specifically uh, what we might call higher education or further education. Now, Josh, you just said a little bit ago that you recently mastered the English language, but can you tell us tell us a bit more about your education journey? Yeah, so that was a, a way of saying that I got my master's degree in English. Um, I just like putting it in um, verb form. Uh, it, it makes it um, sound less impressive than what it is. Not to say that it's super impressive, but <laughs> so my uh, academic journey began quite young. I I can't remember. I don't think I ever had a moment where I decided, well, I want to t- I want to teach college or make higher education my profession. But I do remember in high school, uh, this came back to me as I was thinking about having this conversation. I remember in high school being very interested in higher education. Um, nobody in my family had uh, gone beyond uh, the 12th grade. In fact, my my uh, siblings and I were the only ones who had completed um, 12th grade. Both my parents grew up Amish and only completed 8th grade. Um, but I remember in high school printing off uh, like glossaries of terms related to higher education. Um, you know, what is a credit hour? Uh, what's a semester? What's a major? What's a minor? Um, these kinds of things. And if memory is accurate, I would I would peruse this before falling asleep at night, you know, kind of memorize five terms at a time. And so there was obviously something about that life that appealed to me. And I would also browse the annual Christianity Today issue that talked about higher education, Christian higher education. Uh, in brief, my academic journey has been spread out over quite some time. I started at Faith Builders in 2008, I completed the teacher apprenticing program, I taught for several years, and left um, that with uh, partly to, to uh, continue my education. And for various reasons, ended up transferring to Regent University. Um, Faith Builders is unaccredited, so uh, only a handful of, of colleges and universities transfer those credits. But I transferred to Regent University and kind of chose English for convenience, and it, it, it fit closest to what I w- was interested in. And I was able to transfer uh, 60 credits, which is half of a bachelor's degree. But ended up doing it online uh, again for various reasons. Actually, completed that in 2016 in Jerusalem, where I was working in international humanitarian work. And I always saw that as a stepping stone to grad school. But that was a vision that kind of developed as I was completing the bachelor's. And so in 2018, enrolled at Duquesne University in a two year master's program. I was on a teaching fellowship, which meant tuition was paid in exchange for teaching first-year classes. Um, So I taught first-year writing for uh, two years at Duquesne and graduated in 2020. Back to distance education thanks to the COVID pandemic, so kind of went full circle there. Okay, we'll come back to talking about your views on education in some more detail, I think. But James, you also have some education beyond high school, right? Yes, that's right. So I I graduated high school and worked on a construction crew for a few years. And when I was just turned 20, I was playing volleyball one evening and 
landed a little bit wrong and wrenched my knee pretty badly to where I couldn't walk for several weeks since that pretty much took care of my took care of my roofing career. Up at that point, I was starting to get a little bit dissatisfied with with construction. I mean, it was a good job, but I guess I'm the type of person that really likes to to continue to learn and I'd kind of learned all that I felt like I could. And so I was looking at maybe going for uh, for college. So I went to the local community college and, and enrolled and started started taking classes there. And after I had went there for about one semester, I was asked by a local Christian school, it was actually the school that I'd went to, if I'd be willing to teach. And so I went ahead and taught. Um, I just taught one year, and then I took a couple years break. They asked me to teach again, and I, I, mean, I continued teaching for a number of years after that. And I, I stopped teaching just a few years ago. So during that time of teaching part-time and, and doing other jobs part-time, uh, I finished my, my associate's degree. It's just a, a, just a general degree with um, your standard English and science and math classes, nothing too, too special. And I was looking at maybe going for a bachelor's, and I thought about it. And uh, originally, I had went to get to the degree as kind of the first step toward getting some sort of job in the medical field. But my experience teaching made me realize that I like that a lot more than I would probably enjoy some medical job like uh, being a nurse or taking x-rays. And so I looked at that, and most of the schools that I would teach at do not require a, um, a teaching degree, you know, a bachelor's. And so I made the decision that it wasn't worth the time or money to to get my bachelor's, and so I stopped my education there uh, with my associates with a two-year degree. Okay, and for this conversation, I will be the resident idiot. <laughs> I completed high school, but it was through a homeschooling program under a homeschool umbrella that they called it at the time. My mom helped me some with the logistics, but I essentially taught myself and uh, used my, my textbooks and my local library pretty heavily to get through my my high school, and received my diploma through testing under the same homeschool umbrella at a local vocational school. And with it, I received a scholarship for several years of of uh, college paid in full. But I decided not to pursue college for various reasons. One of One of the reasons I think is relevant to the conversation that we're going to have in this episode, that is at the time I was attending an Anabaptist church, but different from the one I'm in currently, and that particular that particular church group frowned on higher education beyond beyond high school, and I would say they were suspicious of high school, probably. They were an Amish Mennonite background church, which the Amish and and groups similar often go only to the eighth grade, as as uh, Josh mentioned earlier. So they were a little bit suspicious of high school in general, and then pretty much against college or anything higher. And that was one of the primary reasons I didn't didn't pursue higher education. It's somewhat common in traditional conservative Anabaptist churches to hold higher education at arm's length, I think. Is that how you've found it, Josh, in Anabaptist circles that you've run in? Yeah. 
my perspective is probably a bit different than most uh, because I went to school from grades 6 to 12 at Faith Builders, which in the conservative Anabaptist world has is definitely promoting uh, one of the few institutions promoting higher education, although within specific parameters and over the years have been able to see the institution, which is where I'm working at now, gain substantial trust uh, from the conservative Anabaptist community. I mean, more so than they had at the beginning. So all that to say that uh, I haven't, I probably haven't experienced it as much as uh, other conservative Mennonites, Anabaptists might. Although the church that I was a part of, we were, uh, my family, my, my, my siblings and I, we were, we were some of the few who would even go through high school. And now it's pretty much, pretty much uh, standard for uh, students to complete high school, even from, from that church. But, um, so I would have felt it a bit, a bit from my church, a bit of suspicion or, um, especially higher education in you know, 12th grade even was, was a bit suspicious, but generally there wasn't anything official about the opposition. It was just a general kind of suspicion, but yeah, I would have had, I remember, you know, I won't mention who this was or, or her relation to me, but, um, being told, at one point that you know, much learning maketh thee mad. <laughs> and I have since, you know, figured out that I should have retorted that that was an insult hurled at Paul, um, who was, you know, essentially the founder of institutional you know, Christianity <laughs> or the Christian faith um, <laughs> next to Jesus. But anyway, that that is the kind of, uh, the, the pushback definitely, um, or I recognize it. But why why is that? Where does that come from? Well, I think one of the most uh, the clearest reason why Anabaptists um, tend to be suspicious of higher education is that we are a very practical um, kind of people. We work with you know historically have worked with our hands have have been farmers, um, business people, and so um, higher education unless it's directed toward a clear outcome can be seen as perhaps selfish um leading to leading to pride which you know i think there's a fairly clear connection between um, knowing a lot and thinking that you have what it takes to solve the world's problems or that you're able to see everything um, from all possible angles I would like to think that education can also lead to humility but that we, we can get to that uh, later on um, so, so there's that kind of ethnic um, historical reason. More broadly, higher education does often call people away from community, communities uh, of faith that have a vested interest in their um, spiritual well-being. Um, kind of the standard, the path is, you know, pull people out of their communities, transplant them in some college town somewhere, and allow or enable the institutions of higher education to work on that person for um, four years, you know, for an undergraduate and then, you know, kind of send them back. And um, that, that, that removal, um, that alienation can, especially for a young person, can be very um, disconcerting, disorienting, the, you know, the track record for institutions of higher education hasn't always been the best uh, as far as remaining faithful to to the scriptures, um, to orthodox faith. 
so I, I think that's why you see some of that uh, pushback, which it was interesting. Melvin Lehman recently, actually, James, you were there um, for that. Um, he talked about the history of Faith Builders and kind of around the time that Faith Builders was getting started is when there was a fairly significant shift in Anabaptist, conservative Anabaptist perceptions of higher education um, to the point that, you know, Faith Builders could barely get started. Some of the initial visionaries were conservative men who were very well educated, but then by the time, you know, in the 60s, 70s, um, by the time they were getting things off the ground, there was a pretty strong pushback. And so it's taken a while to kind of regain some of that, 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 that trust and that confidence from the church. So those are, those are, the, those are some of the big uh, contours, um, but I haven't studied it or I don't know. There's a lot of research, uh, which of course is probably telling of our <laughs> suspicion of higher education and research. Um, there's not a lot of research um, done to support some of that, but that's kind of my hunch. I am assuming that most of our listeners are Anabaptists just because we are we're a new podcast and a lot of the people who are listening are people who know us or else know people who know us and so it may be interesting for listeners to know that um my background as a young person was from an Amish Mennonite church and Josh's background was from a beachy church is that right josh we would have considered ourselves amish mennonite at some level but i think a different stripe of amish mennonite than right you know, yours was yeah. and james you have a different background from both of us and so i really don't know how how mennonites who are different from amish mennonites and beachy what their stereotypical views of education are so you, I, I'm curious if you could tell us what what your people are like. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not sure that I can speak for my people. <laughs> I really did not get much pushback when I was going to college. I don't think I actually remember anybody saying anything negative or asking me while I was going, and which I guess when I first was going, I did have a specific purpose in mind, and at that point I was also baptized. I'd given my given my life to Christ and was a member of the church in good standing. And so I guess that was part of the reason why they weren't quite so worried about me. My grandfather got his bachelor's degree, or I think it's just a bachelor's. I don't know that he got his master's at, at Eastern Mennonite College, which is now EMU, Eastern Mennonite University, which is right across, right across the road from Christian Light. <laughs> And and oftentimes in the Shenandoah Valley, where I was born and raised, usually EMU is kind of held up as what happens when Mennonites try to do higher education. <laughs> and and so I'm actually not quite as pro higher education as I used to be. Right after I graduated from college or I was in the middle of going to college, I thought everybody should go to college and it was the best thing ever. And I probably was fairly obnoxious about that. So I apologize <laughs> to anybody um, that I annoyed by my, my strong opinions. But as I've gotten older and hopefully a bit more, have a bit more wisdom, I've realized that it's it's not for everybody. And I think that it should be, it should be considered pretty seriously, or I should say, you shouldn't just rush into it. 
my mom was was horse and buggy older Mennonite. They definitely very very I mean really basically none of them go for higher education, and I'm not sure what their attitudes are. Uh, I wish I could be a little bit more definitive about that, but I would say that maybe Shenandoah Valley isn't maybe as hesitant about education as some areas, but there definitely is some hesitancy there. My my grandfather was a college professor, but he was definitely a little bit of the outlier. It's It's interesting that it seems like 40, 50, 60 years ago, I think maybe things changed in the 70s perhaps but but for a while it was it was not that common but it wasn't unheard of for uh, for young men and women to go to college but it seems like it's not as common as it used to be and if they are it's primarily for some trade like uh being a doctor or a nurse that sort of thing I would say that's largely um true although I think in my lifetime, short short lifetime of 32 years, I think I've seen a significant shift in, in younger, young people going to college, pursuing higher education. It's still, you know, not as common for maybe grad school or like, you know, master's and PhDs. I generally sought out anybody in, that still was part of a conservative congregation who had a PhD just to you know, for community, um, which I believe is, is very important for anybody. But my, my hunch is that, um, or my, my, my sense mm-hmm. is that some of that's changing for, uh, what are they now, Gen Zers. <laughs> and I, but I think you're right that even there, it's more acceptable to go for, to go for medicine or even for business, maybe, than it would be for something like philosophy or theology or um, <laughs> heaven forbid uh english <laughs> uh, and and some of that is just related again to our i think um to our kind of pragmatic mm-hmm. uh, sensibilities you know what are you going to do with that oh you're going to be able to run a business with it okay that makes sense but you're going to what you're going to go talk about the meaning of uh, of texts uh, you're going to read plato and try to understand the essence of life try again. <laughs> yeah, saying that reminds me of a quote that I came across by Andrew Carnegie, who said, men have sent their sons to college to waste their energies upon <laughs> obtaining a knowledge of such languages as Greek and Latin, which are of no more practical use to them than Choctaw. <laughs> they have been educated as if they were destined for life upon some other planet than this. In my own experience, I can say that I have known few young men intended for business who were not injured by a collegiate education. (laughs) Had they gone into active work during the years spent at college, they would have been better educated men in every true sense of that term. (laughs) Now now you're just trying to trigger me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what you mean by educated. (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yeah. No. Back back to before we leave that discussion, talking about kind of the the trends. Uh, back in the fifties and sixties, my grandfather was going was going to EMC in the late fifties, I believe. Then he taught at Bridgewater College in the early sixties, early to mid sixties. Yeah. There in the late sixties, you had kind of the. It was a very uh, a very pivotal time in in American culture. You had kind of the. Uh, the countercultural movement 
hippies, all that sort of thing going on. Mm -hmm. And it was during that time that I think some of the maybe more liberal strands of of Mennonites and Anabaptists somewhat allied themselves with with some of the more liberals in in politics, mm-hmm. um, where you know kind of the social gospel kind of got started. Now, I'm not an expert on the social gospel, um, so maybe I don't even know what I'm talking about. And so, my grandfather and and people of his generation saw this higher education heading down that direction, and that really kind of raised red flags for them, and probably made them a bit more hesitant to uh, for their young people to then. Uh, they're young people, my, you know, our parents' generation, for them to go to higher education, and that was then passed on to us. Uh, generations kind of go in cycles, so maybe now, like Josh said, it's it's becoming more acceptable for higher education than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Well, yeah, if I could just come back to the, I mean, the, the Carnegie uh, quote. I mean, at least he was being honest about it. <laughs> um, I, but I think where higher education is today is just kind of the outworkings of that kind of education as a means to economic success. And so you, you, you do have this crisis of legitimacy in, for example, the humanities. You know, why would anyone want to study Latin or Greek or, you know, or Hebrew or whatever, these languages that don't easily translate into material wealth and it's interesting like you 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 have a lot of those pushes even today um from certain sectors and thinking figures like uh, mike rowe and some of these uh who really are strong advocates for the trades like don't go to college Mm -hmm. you know learn learn a trade which uh, i'm not entirely negative about that but to quote another podcast uh, that i listen to uh, quite a bit I think I think it was on that podcast. Uh, they were talking about how they would at least they they would like the guy programming the Google the self driving Google car <laughs> to at least have some kind of understanding background in ethics, um, so that when he's programming it to make ethical decisions, that he you know, he at least has some understanding of, uh, of of the categories. And so I think it's it's easy for industrialists and STEM infatuated people to hey (laughs) (laughs) i said stem infatuated i believe (laughs) i believe a full education of course includes uh, science technology engineering and math um all gifts from 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 god um through creation we are more than rational you know brains and bodies we are also more than producers and consumers in a marketplace so Mm -hmm. i would generally my, my pushback against the anabaptist the mennonite like pragmatism would be just that it seems like we fairly easily can come up with some pretty good theologies for wealth and business and accumulation of money and use of money. And I think I think I'm not denigrating all of that, but we can do that even though Scripture talks in pretty stark terms about the dangers of of wealth. Mm-hmm. But we can still kind of we can still kind of inhabit that world, and yet we kind of tend to as a culture or have tended to kind of reject education out of hand when scripture includes both um, clear you know, warnings against uh, excessive or wrong kinds of education and knowledge, but also um, praises it very highly. I would just kind of my soapbox and I'll, I'll get off of it here soon, but I would, I would like to see some kind of, some kind of balance there mm-hmm. that at least calls, calls into question um, those values that, that we kind of easily default to. Mm-hmm. That's, that's something that I've, 
I've taught, see, I taught high school eight years. And the question you always hear from students is, when am I ever going to need to know this? (laughs) That's just, it's the classic question. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I don't think we should be teaching them things that have absolutely no use whatsoever. But at the same time, I don't know that we should, that the absolute test of whether we should learn something has to be passed through, this is something we can use in our job to make money. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's more value to that. Uh, to education than simply gaining skills and knowledge for a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, we we do really good at at making money, and it feels like sometimes our our education system. By our education system, I mean like Anabaptist schools. Mm-hmm. We do a really good job of of equipping our young people with skills they need to go to a job, and I think that it should. But I don't know that that's the only thing that it should do. Mm-hmm. Well, if I could just, I mean, yeah, yeah, respond to that. I think that's, I think that's very good. And I think the problem, you know, you know, that view of education is very, is very modernist. It, uh, it's, it's really a view of education that we've kind of unwittingly taken from, I think, you know, enlightenment modernity, where like it's, it's utilitarian. You, you, you master it in order to use it in order to benefit yourself, you know, economically in some way. And I think, I think the question should be if, you know, if we're love, actually loving God with our mind, I think as the scripture calls us to, is not so much, what can I do with this, but what, what can this do to me? Like, how can this learning how to solve a trigonometry problem help me become a better person, a more a holier person, <laughs> a more persistent person, like more of a, the view of, putting ourselves in the subject position or, or object position or whatever. I, I, I'm getting my categories confused here, but where we're the ones being worked on and not so much just manipulating it and using it. Cause I think that's, there's a kind of violence inherent in that vision of education. And I think to do it, to do it Christianly, it needs to be a part of a spiritual formation. It needs to part of, be a part of discipleship. And that's, that's what could get me, that, that's what got me on the podcast. And so, you know, um, I could say more about, it. I think I'll leave it there, but you know, education as worship, uh, as spiritual formation, I think is where it, the conversation has to go in order for it not to just, for us not to just repeat the, the mistakes of higher education writ large, mm-hmm. which is kind of where we're at a, a moment of pretty significant crisis across, across higher education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, perhaps, perhaps trigonometry problems are kind of like the intellectual equivalent of hitting your thumb with a hammer. <laughs> you know, you'll learn something about yourself from what comes out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed trigonometry, um, the, the the little bit that I did in high school. I, yeah, I really enjoyed that and and calculus as well. Although, I would be um, out of my depths at this point to mm-hmm. to attempt either. Calculus was a nightmare for me. <laughs> Apparently, having a master's degree in English or tangential things allows you to make up new words like Christianly. But um... <laughs> hey, Shakespeare! Shakespeare made up made up whatever word you know he needed at the time. So you know, both of you are are um, looking at this. What you're seeing as a problem of looking at higher education pragmatically, or like. What can I get from it? What job can I get? How can I make make money? I think both of you said 
I do not know what this making of money is of which you speak. But <laughs> it does make me ask the question, who who should pursue higher education? And I have a couple of, um, I guess, statistics or reports, excerpts that I want to to read here. And then I'm going to ask the question again. But this is from Pew Forum, and I have several different several different studies that that they did. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts. The one says here that uh, highly educated Americans also are less inclined than others to say they believe in God with absolute certainty and to pray on a daily basis. And when asked about their religious identity, college graduates are more likely than others to describe themselves as atheists or agnostics. 11% of college graduates versus uh, 4% of U.S. adults. And then another excerpt, both Protestantism and Catholicism are experiencing losses of population share. Currently, 43% of U.S. adults identify with Protestantism, down from 51% in 2009. And 1 in 5 adults, 20%, are Catholic, down from 23% in 2009. Meanwhile, all subsets of religiously unaffiliated population, a group also known as religious nuns, have seen their numbers swell. Self-described atheists now account for 4% of U.S. adults up modestly, but significantly from 2% in 2009. So I think those two excerpts are statistics that the church at large is seeing. So then the question again is who should pursue higher education? Boy, that's a, that's a tough question. I'll say this. I was very glad to have been married, to, to have been pursuing higher education, especially at the graduate level. My undergraduate was at a Christian university. It wouldn't have been as hostile perhaps, although the amount of hostility is at times, I think, overplayed in the way education gets talked about in the kind of culture wars conversation. But all that said, I was I was very glad to, to have some roots um, in grad school. I, you know, I was married, had three children, or actually Cadman, our last youngest, was born around the time I graduated. So, and we were part of a regular part of a church congregation we lived in Pittsburgh, but commuted to uh, Meadville about 90 miles every weekend or most weekends uh, to commune with, with the church. And, and those were very kind of grounding, rooting, settling kinds of activities that I think that, that, that you just wouldn't have, A, if I would have been younger and unattached um, and as well as transplanted to some kind of college town somewhere um, disconnected from my past. And so I think... That's a long way of saying I don't think it's it's wise always to send every dewy-eyed uh, 18-year-old fresh out of high school, you know, ship them off to college, Christian or or otherwise. Um, I, I, I just don't think that's very smart because at least I have found uh, I tend to be the type of person, perhaps more than some rationalists among us, <laughs> to be very uh, influenced by by the people around me and you know what I find believable is somewhat dependent on the context that I'm in and the paradigms that we're working from but 
I would like to have some space in the church to see education and higher education as a legitimate calling, um, something that God calls some people to, um, whether through the capacity of their minds or or otherwise, to pursue Him, to pursue God and truth and, and knowledge in that way. But I think that needs to happen in the context of a some some stability, spiritual stability, and definitely in connection with the church. So to the statistics that you were quoting, my feelings about that are similar to my feelings about the fact that churches are emptying kind of the institutional religion is on the decline. And while I I think that's lamentable, I think we lose something as a culture. Uh, there's also a sense in which perhaps the quality of faith that's, that's left is, is actually better um, than what was there before. I would I don't say this cavalierly, but I, I do think a tested faith is is better if it can be tested in a in a in a safe maybe that's paradoxical, but if it can be tested in a safe environment or in a safe um, in a, in a non reckless context, and that the fact that you know people that, that young people especially go off to college and lose their faith within a semester might say more about our lack of engagement with higher education than the failure of higher education as such. So I, th- I think, you know, in some ways it highlights the need for, you know, for Christians to be engaged there. Um, if you want to think of it even missionally, there are people who are more inclined to certain modes of thought and questions than others and and um, want answers and are looking for answers. It's interesting, you mentioned the statistics and um, the article by Karen Swallow Pryor, Faith in the Humanities, talks about some of those statistics as well, as well, but she also mentions that people who go to a Christian college are more likely to, I don't, I forget the exact statistics, but people who go to a Christian college are more likely to lose that faith sooner or in greater numbers than somebody who goes to a secular uh, college or university where their faith is put to the test, where they have to seek out other people of their faith. And that, that actually the fact of them being in the minority um, serves to strengthen the faith that, uh, more than it does to damage it. So I don't. I see the. I see the situation is a bit more complex than what some of the the statistics lead you to believe. Especially if they're accompanied with a kind of, you know, culture wars hand wringing. Mm-hmm. But that's not to minimize the fact that that is, you know, of course, a reality that I think we need to take seriously. I looked at a similar article or a similar uh, study done by the Pew Research Center and. It's it it's kind of mixed, and in some areas, it seems like people that that graduate from college are not as engaged with religion, but in other ways, they are mm-hmm. just as much as those with less education. So I don't think I'm I'm kind of like Josh. I don't think it's quite as as easy to just kind of say, well, uh, if you go to college, there's a greater chance that you're going to to lose your faith. I don't think it's quite that simple. When I was in college. I'm not really sure exactly what I was expecting when I went there, and I didn't really take any classes that were maybe lent themselves to there being more confrontation, but I did have one class in particular. It was an ethics class, and my professor very loudly proclaimed that he was—I'm not sure if he was an agnostic or if he was an atheist, but he definitely did not believe in God, and he was pretty antagonistic toward those of us Hmm. who did, which I think was— the majority of the class. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I think that was a strengthening experience for me and for my faith was going through that. Yeah, just like what you said, if you have if you have something if you have some resistance, 
if you're in an environment where you're being challenged, it, it makes you, it, it really makes you think more deeply about what you do believe. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like I had a solid foundation. And so I just kind of dug in and my faith was strengthened. I think it was, it was a very good experience for me. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is that we're living, uh, these are fancy terms, but we're living in the, both a post-secular and a post-Christian world. And by post-secular, it, it just, it, it means that most most uh, philosophers, thinkers, theorists that I think, you know, at least worth their salt, or this is you know, showing my, my bias, of course, agree that the whole myth of secularization, that is that religious belief will inevitably decline with modernization, with industrialization, that's just not holding true. Like that whole that whole thesis is just not secularization thesis is not just is not holding true. People have a very hard time taking like institutional religious belief seriously, which it gets to the post-Christian part. But there is an amazing amount, uh, in my experience, of openness to questions of religious faith, religious practice, spirituality. You know, of course, you have the spiritual but not religious um, kind of engagement with with reality or with 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 the question. So, so yeah, it's, it's a little bit surprising to even hear of an ethics professor who is like openly antagonistic um, towards that. I, I, my hunch is that he just didn't get the memo that secularism is, 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 is gone. Um, <laughs> that ship is, that ship is uh, sailed, but I say that probably more triumphantly than what it actually is in reality. But in my experience, even working in higher education, um, working on theology and literature, questions of faith and literature, all of that is like not only, tolerated but but respected and encouraged and it seems like people are 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 gaining an appreciation for uh, religion as such although of course that's never like you know our postmodernism keeps us from making any universal claims about truth it's just it's more recognition that it's that it's there and it's shaping the world in particular ways and it's not going to go away anytime soon of course I, i haven't really been that engaged in higher education with science but but I do read a decent amount of scientific literature. I definitely don't think, at least it doesn't feel like uh, the antagonism is going away from science quite yet. So maybe the humanities, <laughs> since y'all aren't, aren't dealing with, with hard, cold facts, and you're just kind of wishy-washy with truth, maybe maybe they're fine with Christians there. So <laughs> Jab, jab. Well, that's just the, uh, it's, it's the problem with scientists who, who <laughs> extend a method of knowing um, and universalize it and, and claim that it is the only way to know anything for certain. And, yeah. and there you're just exposing the fact that you didn't study your philosophy very well because mm-hmm. guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson and some of these radical fundamentalists, I call them fundamentalist atheists, um, you know, <laughs> Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and those mm-hmm. who are not just scientists, but like, believers in science have this religious belief in in the method of science it, it's just you know they they get a lot of airtime in you know they, they know how to make the headlines they get a lot of you know airtime on kind of a popular level but but really like academically uh, in 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 like philosophical circles and and even even in your more informed um humane scientific circles they're just not they're just not taken seriously mm-hmm. um because it's it it's seen for what it is it's it's 
it's a religion as much as, you know, the Southern Baptist fundamentalists, you know, <laughs> uh, thumping the Bible as a religion. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, I was saying that because I knew that Josh would respond. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> oh, my. But uh, I feel so predictable. <laughs> but yeah, but I do wonder if, if the different uh, the different mindsets between those that study the humanities and those that study science, I wonder if, if that could be why they're a little bit more, I mean, you, you can't really divorce the humanities from religion. It's so just in uh, just intertwined in, in literature mm-hmm. over the last thousands of years. Whereas with science, you know, we, we come up with with a model to explain the way the world works. That doesn't work very well. We come up with a better one. And so mm-hmm. we're more used to just, if something doesn't work, we just toss it out. <laughs> and so, but so, so then when we're, when we're told to believe science, what are we supposed to believe? Because like what you're articulating there is exactly what happens in other ways of knowing and other disciplines. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, coming up with models and, you know, testing and, and throwing things out, mm-hmm. you know, that that's like, I, I agree. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. you know, when somebody tweets, well, believe science, capitalize science, you know, mm-hmm. Like what are they, I, you know, I, I can, I can infer that they mean like trust the experts, trust the knowledgeable people. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. That, that is a good point. And, and just to, just to clarify what I was saying, it doesn't mean that uh, one of the best examples of this is, is the development of the atomic model. And I'll try to make this really short for those of you that are already <laughs> falling asleep. Um, but like we started out and we thought that the atom was just this like ball of stuff with these protons kind of sprinkled through it. And then they did these experiments and found out that there was a nucleus in the middle that was very dense and very small. And then they did more experiments and found out some things about the electrons. And so they kept like each model in a sense was useful, but it didn't quite explain everything. Mm-hmm. And so they kept refining uh, today, we still use some of the more simplistic models to teach chemistry to uh, like lower elementary students, mm-hmm. fourth, fifth, sixth graders, because the more complex models that are more accurate are more difficult to understand. Mm-hmm. That's what I was meaning by we throw things out. We, we still use them, but right. they only work for certain things. It's, it's, it's kind of like a model, in a sense, is kind of like an analogy. Mm-hmm. At some point, it always breaks okay, down. Okay, girls, right. you're both pretty, and I love science <laughs> and humanities equally. Well, if I, could just, if, I could just, if I could just critique my own tribe for a bit, just say this, that humanities people, especially the way it's worked out in the modern university, uh, we do not help ourselves at times when we, especially when we make headlines, as I saw recently, asserting that that mathematics, teaching mathematics is um, somehow connected to um, whiteness and white privilege and, and race. And, 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 you know, of course, there's there, there are probably some cultural connections there, but um, we, we don't help our cause when we have um, three answers for any question <laughs> that gets posed. You know, it's either, you know, racism, sexism, or, or class, you know, and that's kind of the those are the kind of unbreakable models with which we look at the world. So there is more than enough to critique within uh, academic humanities, but I will leave it there. I think we're going a bit into the weeds here from, from where our, our ignorant host wants to take us. Yeah. I believe if we're trying to make the case that, that more conservative Anabaptists should go to college, we're not being very persuasive. If anything, we're persuading them that they shouldn't go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I, I can tell you though, why you should, why you should study English. Well, maybe not in, in as the way the institution is currently structured, but, you know, according to how I would structure it.
Hello there. This is Sean coming to you from the editor's desk. We assumed this topic could go long, but it went a good bit longer than we expected, even with all my brutal cutting. So we're going to release this episode in two parts. We hope you're enjoying the conversation so far and come back in part two, in which James and Josh go on to solve all the world's problems while I try to rein them in a wee bit. I thoroughly enjoyed hearing their thoughts and throwing in a few of my own. If you have some thoughts on higher education and its effects on religion and community and so on, or if you have your own education story and lessons you learned from it, please let us know. You can reach us at lookingoverlife at gmail.com. Share the episode with a friend and come back for next time. Until then, ciao!